But Exodus picks up where Genesis left off. Abraham's grandson, Jacob, and his family of 70 sojourned to Egypt during a famine where they're protected and provided for by the benevolence of Jacob's son, Joseph. Joseph, after being betrayed by his brothers and sold into slavery into Egypt, rises to a position of status. He's second in command of all of Egypt through the sovereign providence of God. Now, God's, God's plan for people, for his people from the very beginning, was for them to work alongside him in bringing life and hope to the world. As Phil mentioned last week, not simply as a command, but because of God's love for us, he invites us into this work of offering life to the world. He loves to bring life, and he invites us into this labor of love alongside him to share the gospel to be fruitful and multiply. And we read this invitation to join him at the very beginning of redemptive history. So just as a, a matter of review, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, it says, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So God invites us in to bring life. So sin took life away. The punishment that brought sin through Adam and Eve was death, but now it's life through this promise made to Abraham and to his descendants, Joseph included. They were, bring, they were to bring restoration and hope to the world. After Joseph and his people joined him in Egypt, God blessed them as he promised. We see this promise of, of the multiplication of life continuing through Exodus. In Exodus chapter 1, verse 7, it says, But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. But like every good story, there's a villain here that battles against life and hope. You see, the new pharaoh of Egypt knew nothing of Joseph had no respect for his people, and they were threatened by the Israelites and did not see this multiplication of life as a blessing. He sees them as a threat to his power, so he enslaves them with hard physical labor to slow down their growth. It's truly a disturbing representative of humanity's rebellion against God. But God, as he always does, responds to this horrific evil. Even in light of Pharaoh's order to kill all the baby boys, God, God responds. It seems like evil's winning. And here was the plan. Phil mentioned this. Moses' mother evades Pharaoh's demonic decree to kill the Israelite baby boys by placing Moses in a basket and floating him down the Nile River. A member of Pharaoh's family discovers Moses while on the river and raises him as her own. So Moses is literally being raised by the man who orders his death. That's how God works. Isn't that amazing? And through a series of events, Moses, who appears to be the hero of this story, flees Egypt to another community for a number of years after killing an Egyptian guard, trying to protect and defend his countrymen. During this period where Moses is on the run, he encounters God in a powerful way. In a burning bush, we see that the bush was ignited but not consumed by the fire. And God communicates to Moses through this burning bush that he's going to use him 
to deliver God's people, to bring life in the midst of all of this death and hopelessness. This escape plan is certainly miraculous as the Egyptians were far more powerful and sophisticated than the Israelites. Think OSU football versus, you know, maybe a little peewee flag football team. It seemed impossible. And here was the escape plan. The, the plan that God gives to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verse 16. God says to Moses, Go assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed towards this people so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. So now, in what we just read, verse 19 gets really interesting. God foreshadows the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, offering his people comfort, even in the midst of that, that he's going to come through, that he is going to win the day. So he says, hey, things are going to get difficult. Things are going to get dicey. There's going to be trials, but in the end, I'm going to win. Wasn't that gracious of God? He knows what they're up against. He knows these Israelites are against, they're coming up against insurmountable odds. Evil, almost incarnate, what we see here in Pharaoh. So they know that the ending is a happy one and they know it's going to be a painful journey. But if you fast forward in the Exodus story a little bit, we find a disturbing verse. One that has probably troubled all of us, who have even, even if we've just read through the Bible once. We see how God compelled Pharaoh to release his people. In Exodus chapter 9, verse 12, it's in response to one of the plagues that God brings upon the Egyptians. It says this, But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said to Moses. So a simple reading of this verse seems to communicate that God compelled Pharaoh to release the Israelites by hardening his heart. That maybe the plagues were a, a fireworks display of some sort against the backdrop of Pharaoh's hard heart. So it seems to many who read Exodus that God makes Pharaoh sin, making it impossible for him to choose righteousness. So does God handicap Pharaoh's will in such a way that he cannot choose to release the Israelites? In this struggle of good versus evil, it seems as though Moses is the instrument of righteousness and Pharaoh the instrument of evil. Are they both just pawns on God's chessboard? This question gets at the idea of free will. Did God harden the heart of Assad to release chemical weapons on innocent civilians? 
Does God harden the heart of an abusive husband so that he beats his wife? Does our behavior matter or is it just prescribed by the mighty one, by God? It's easy to read this story through the lens of hero and villain, good versus evil, with God controlling them both as pawns or mindless drones. Pharaoh the villain, the evil one, and Moses the righteous hero. But this historical narrative, this true story, speaks to God's redemptive plan by disrupting our corrupted and flawed view of good and evil. We'll shift in our seats. We'll become uncomfortable tonight if we identify with Moses and demonize Pharaoh. So let's start by taking a closer look at Pharaoh. And I'll pray. Please pray with me. Agree with me in prayer. Lord, we know that the gospel is not some simple message that we hear once and then we're done. Or that we hear until we pass from death to life and turn from our sins and accept your rescue. We know that the gospel, we need to hear it daily. We need to hear it collectively as a body to remember that it's not about us. Help us once again to be, Lord, refreshed and restored to grace. In Jesus' name, amen. So God uses a series of ten plagues or curses to get Pharaoh's attention. We read one of his responses just a moment ago to, to God hardening Pharaoh's heart to one of the plagues. But let's read one of the earlier ones. In Exodus chapter 7, verse 13, this is Pharaoh's response to one of the plagues that God brings upon the Egyptians. It says, Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. It doesn't say that God hardened Pharaoh's heart there, does it? It says his heart became hard. So it implies a process where Pharaoh applied his will over time to disobeying God. Let's read another response. Exodus 7, verse 20. Again, to a plague. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile, and all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. But the Egyptian magicians did the same thing by their secret arts, and Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace and did not take even this to heart. The same thing in this example, right? His heart became hard through continued and willful disobedience. Let's read his response to a very interesting plague of frogs that just covered the entire land. And they all they started rotting and smelling and they're getting all the frogs and stacks and piles and getting rid of them. And this is Pharaoh's response at this point when the plague, when God uh, relents and uh, removes this plague. In Exodus chapter 8, verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord had said. Now here's a curveball. The Egyptian leader hardens his own heart. 
it goes on like this through the first five plagues. And I don't think it's a coincidence that it's not until the sixth of ten plagues. It's not until then where we read God hardens Pharaoh's heart. So there's a tension between God's sovereign rule and our free choice. We see both ends of the spectrum in this story. We see Pharaoh being given multiple attempts to see the raw power of God only to respond to his merciful opportunities to repent and release God's people with a continual hardening of heart and will. On the other hand, we see God using Pharaoh's disobedience to accomplish his own purposes. So God gives Pharaoh free choices, but his sinful choices accomplish God's will nonetheless. So in other words, God gives us choice, but he's not in any way hindered by our choices. So Pharaoh, the Pharaoh hardened his heart by his own free will. And it's a mystery, but there comes a point where we no longer have any control over our hard heart. I don't know when that is. I don't know when that is, but there comes a point where our heart becomes so hard, it becomes very difficult for it to be softened and turned to God. As I said at the beginning, those who view this story through the lens of Moses being the hero and Pharaoh being the villain are going to shift in their seats. Because I believe that the whole point of this story is to pull the rug from out, out from underneath of us. You know, we look at Pharaoh and it's easy to say, well, he is the devil in the flesh. Moses is the hero. So we know Pharaoh hardened his heart by his own free will, right? Can we all agree to that? You guys have been out on the sun like me. I've been hitting fly balls and ground balls and all that stuff today and a little bit sunburned. Maybe you've been outside today too, but try to hang with me. Um, or else I'm going to start hitting ground balls to you out in here. I'm going to line you up and we're going to produce something tonight. Uh, so Moses... I don't want to take anything away from the guy. Obviously, he's a mighty instrument of God. To say that he followed God's directives against an intimidating foe is an understatement. But we see several seams in Moses' character unraveling as the pressures increased. And it reveals some surprising flaws. So let's rewind to the infant stages of Moses' calling to confront the Pharaoh. Moses is in the process of leaving his refuge city that he retreated to after killing the Egyptian guard. He's leaving that refuge city to go to Egypt and carry out God's will and confront the Pharaoh. And this is where we pick up. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 24, maybe one of the most disturbing passages in the Bible. At a lodging place on the way, and this is just out of the blue, even when you read it in context, it's tough. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah, mind you, Moses is, it's not a God-fearing woman that he's married to. It's a pagan Midianite. Zipporah took a flint knife. This is not a surgical instrument, but a rock. Cut off her son's foreskin. And touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that same time, she said bridegroom of blood, 
referring to circumcision. Foreskin. Bridegroom of blood. What do foreskin, bridegroom of blood, a pagan wife named Zipporah, circumcision, and a flint knife have in common? Ouch. Ouch. Ouch is what they have in common. It's a confusing story to be sure. That's only happened to Becky and I a few times in our marriage. Um, But I want to focus on what it says in verse 24. Timmy remembers when that happened. Wasn't pretty. See, once you get teenagers, you can poke fun at them in the teaching. It's great. Uh, In verse 24, it says, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. Guys, God had been investing in Moses for 80 years. This was God's man. There were not many faithful in the land. God doesn't need Moses. But isn't he the hero? Why would God threaten to kill the hero? The story's not supposed to go like this. He's the captain of the team, and he's being confronted by God himself. I mean, Pharaoh gets 10 chances, 10 plagues, and Moses just gets one, and God's going to kill him. It seems unfair, doesn't it? It's stories like this that if we're honest, we can get a little angsty in our relationship with God when we read stories like this. It makes us think, maybe he's not who I thought he was. We begin to question the fairness of God. We acknowledge that his ways and his thoughts are not our ways and thoughts, but it's still a difficult pill to swallow. Is God willing to waste 80 years of preparation? What did Moses do that was so wrong? I mean, there are many theories that I don't want to get into tonight. I mean, honestly, the theories are kind of ridiculous because no one really agrees on them. But we do know this. The offense revolves around Moses disobeying God's command to circumcise his son. We know that. And redemptive history tells us that circumcision is a big deal. So let's hit the rewind button once again. We're going to go back quite some time before these events in Exodus to Genesis chapter 17, verse 9. It says, Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So it's hard for us to connect with, uh, with this because we don't get circumcised now as some kind of uh, symbol of our commitment to God. But then it was a very big deal. To be circumcised was an outward and physical symbol of a heart change before God. It was to say, we are the people of God. We are removing ourselves from the world and its values and its sin and marking ourselves as a peculiar, unique, set-aside 
people of God. It was a symbol also that said, if you fail to cut the foreskin, you'll be cut off from the people of God. It was a big deal. So how could Moses have neglected this? How could he have neglected it? It seems like such a simple thing. I mean, not for the kid, but for the others involved. You see, God, he had provided for Moses every step of the way. I mean, Moses knew God was faithful. As a baby, when Pharaoh sought to kill all the Israelite baby boys, God not only saw to it that Moses was protected by Pharaoh's family, but if you read the story, you'll see that, uh, that God also graciously connected Moses with a wet nurse. And do you know who that wet nurse was? It was Moses' mother. And for four years, Moses was nursed by his mother. That was the tradition back then. By this, this Israelite woman, this Hebrew woman. That You know what? That was enough time for Moses to have learned from his mom who he was and to whom he belonged. He knew. Because they started, they started him very young. More than that, he was given a safe refuge after he killed the Egyptian guard. But even beyond all that, I'm blown away that God had already told Moses, remember at the burning bush, I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to protect you. Things are going to get dicey. I mean, God spoke to Moses and gave him very specific commands. Pharaoh had a hard heart, and that was obvious. Moses' hard heart is less obvious, but he still has a hard heart. So Moses, from a heart or soul perspective, hardened himself to God. Was it Zipporah, his wife? Was, it, was she the one who encouraged Moses to neglect the circumcision rite? I think so, but who really knows? Who knows? But we know he disobeyed. We discover through this, regardless of your opinion on this passage, sin is a huge deal. I mean, Pharaoh gets 10 chances before the Red Sea crushes and drowns him, and Moses, for what seems like a small infraction, is threatened by death from God himself. Sin is death. We chose it. Sin is death. One sin is the choice to embrace death. God gave us life, and Adam and Eve and all of us have chosen sin. We've chosen death. We've chosen to go our own way. We rate sins like a singer on American Idol. Some are not that bad, and others are terrible, and some are really good according to us, but not so with God. God hates American Idol because reality shows are awful. No, I'm just kidding. You understand what I'm saying. God doesn't see the same sin the same way we do. Sin is to God as arsenic is to us. We wouldn't say that just a spoonful of arsenic is no big deal to our systems. Sin kills. It's poison to our souls. So the one that you might have viewed as the hero of this story has come tumbling down. And he does several times that we could point to in this story as well. And we see ourselves in Moses' predicament before God if we pay attention. We don't walk away from this story thinking, I want to be like Moses and avoid the hard heart of Pharaoh. That's not the point. That is not the point of this story. 
we walk away from this story thinking even Moses could not escape being trapped by the almighty God who demands perfection. Even his heart at times was hard towards God. You see, Pharaoh and Moses and you and me have a soul problem, and it's a big deal. Even all Moses' great deeds done for God were not enough. Even though Moses was used by God mightily, that was not enough. So how did Moses and Pharaoh and you and me get into this mess? How do we become so hard-hearted towards God? So poisoned with the deadly effects of sin. Our souls are the problem. They are created for God and by God, and they're hungry for God. Jesus says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? In other words, you can go after all these things to fill yourself, and it can all be for naught. First, we need to have a lightning-quick spiritual anatomy lesson. You are not simply a self. You are a soul. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. We were not made to be self-sufficient. What runs our life is our soul. Our soul screams out, and it causes us to do all kinds of things, some good and some bad. It's not external circumstances, not our emotions, not our relationships or our successes or our failures. The soul is the quarterback that commands our emotions, that commands our responses. If our souls are healthy, then no circumstance or person can shake us. Death can't and failures can't. But if our souls are unhealthy, circumstances and people can't save our lives. Wealth beyond all measure, romance beyond description, success beyond our wildest dreams, and the deepest of friendships are not enough to save our souls. They're Tylenol to a brain tumor, temporary relief to a deadly problem. According to the late Christian author Dallas Willard, I've enjoyed many of his books over the years, he wrote a lot about the soul. And the soul is what connects your will, your mind, and your body into one unifying whole, and it's spoken of often all over the Bible. It seeks to connect us with God and other people in redemptive ways. A healthy soul, according to Willard, is one where your mind, that is your thoughts, your feelings, your values, and your conscience, and your body, your face, your body language, and your actions, and all the rest is brought into a single, well-ordered life. When we feel like our peace is shaken, when you as a mother at home with your children feel like you're about to jump out of your skin, When you're at work and you're bored out of your mind and you think that only a change in position is going to make you happy. When you have tension in a relationship and it feels like only resolution to that relationship will bring you back to a level playing field emotionally. When you search social media for hours on end thinking if I can just get enough likes or be invited to enough groups or events or whatever, I'll be happy. Your problem is a soul problem. It has nothing to do with your kids. It has nothing to do with your job, and it has nothing to do with your social media status. 
but we have replaced soul with self. I hate that magazine called Self. Have you guys seen that? Every time I see it, it just, it just makes me angry. It's just such a picture of the idolatry of self that we've developed in our culture. Self is a standalone, do-it-yourself unit. While the soul reminds us that we're not made for ourselves, that there's something more, that I need more than a self-help strategy, that I've already tried 10 diets. I've already tried 15 different ways to be happier. I've already tried six different ways to, to get more sleep and develop more friendships so I can have a fuller life. And you can try that till the end. It, it's all good, but it will never be enough because we weren't made for self. We don't sing then sings myself, my Savior God, to thee. We sing, then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee. Self is wimpy and fragile. It was never made to support us. When we rely on ourselves and our own efforts, we are relying on something that will ultimately topple and fail. Our soul, according to Tammy Smith's Soul Satisfaction Conference that many of us attended a couple weeks ago, begs the question, am I valuable? Do I matter? That was worth my price of admission right there. You know why? Because that is the question that drives us every second of every day. Am I valuable and do I matter? Our sinful nature attacks this question by getting answers to this question through the changing uh, or acquiring of new relationships and better circumstances. We think if I can just get the right people in my life or get people to respond to me the way I feel like I need them to, and if my circumstances change just right, then I'll be happy. But when we, like Pharaoh and Moses, go to people and circumstances to answer the question, do I matter, am I valuable, Tammy says it's like one person going to another and asking, tell me what you see. One blind person going to another and saying, tell me what you see. It's pointless. So Pharaoh's thinking, if I can just build a kingdom big enough, if I can just get rid of all of these Israelites so that I don't have a threat to my kingdom. And then Moses, is, as Phil mentioned last week, if I could just speak well. And, and then later on, uh, as we read here tonight, whatever was going on in this situation with his son that he had with Sipporah, where he chose not to circumcise his son. That was Moses trying to fill his soul problem with people and circumstances. Like Moses, we can even take good things like accomplishing great feats for God. We can plant churches, start new ministries, uh, go on Christian retreats and do all of those things. We can use them to fill our thirsty souls. But C.S. Lewis says this about that problem. He says, these things are only the scent of the flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. So even the greatest, what Lewis is getting at here is even the greatest things that life has to offer, like the beauty of creation, the laughter of a child, and deep friendships are meant to point us towards the giver of good gifts, to God. They are not and cannot quench our thirsty souls. But our corrupted souls go to circumstances and people to find their fill, and the result is death. That's why it's not about being good. 
Only God brings life. So even Moses couldn't be saved by his many feats accomplished on behalf of God. It was the shedding of blood that saved Moses. That's what saved him. It was the bridegroom of blood that saved him, Jesus Christ. It says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 11, When you come to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. So we look all the way back to Moses and, uh, and Abraham and the command to be circumcised, and it was a foreshadowing, a symbol of what was to come. And because Christ exists eternally, the Jew who circumcised his family and did so the way the symbol was intended to be used as an outward symbol of a heart that was truly changed by God, it was Jesus who saved them. The pre-incarnate Christ. And it was Jesus who saved Moses. Jesus is the hero of this story. It wasn't Moses. And Jesus is the hero of our story. It's not you, it's not me, it's not self. Uh, The worship team can go ahead and come on up here. Every ache in our heart should point us towards Christ. Like Moses, we know the end of the story, don't we? We know the end of the story. And we know that before that happy ending, things are going to get rough. Things have already gotten rough. Jesus says to us about the nature of life on earth in John chapter 16, verse 33. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Does that sound like anybody else you just heard from? When God spoke to Moses and says, I'm going to come through. Pharaoh is, he's going to resist, but I'm going to compel him and you're going to be free. He says, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus also said of the end, he's speaking to his disciples as he ascends to heaven after he finished his ministry on earth. And it says in Acts 1, verse 10, they, that is the disciples, were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white, those were angels, stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So Jesus is coming back. We, that, that, this great day of the Lord series that we just went through is awesome, wasn't it? We know he's coming back. We know the ending. But we, like Moses, what do we do? We harden our hearts anyway. And our promise is so much greater We can't help it. It's the way we're wired. It's the product of fallen humanity. It's, it's, uh, it's the choice that we made when all of us chose to sin. Even the best of us. Just yesterday, my father told me of a funeral he went to. And he, he just actually went yesterday. And uh, this woman who died was a pastor's wife. She was seen as the epitome of love. Everyone in the community said, I mean, the stories at this funeral, that the house was packed, and one person after person gets up, she invited me over for dinner. She helped me when I was going through this trial. She helped me when I was going through that. I mean, it was just, it was awesome. 
She was in church every Sunday at multiple meetings for decades upon decades. And my father, who many of you have met, was shocked when her oldest son got up and shared last at the funeral. And you know what he shared? He said, many of you are going to be shocked by this, but I suspected that my mom loved people, but that she was religious, that she didn't truly have a relationship with Jesus. So I shared the gospel with her, and she came to know Jesus. She had said it never had made sense to her just days before she died. Tonight, I want to ask you a simple question. Do you love Jesus? Because we don't love him on our own. We naturally harden our hearts. He's got to change us. I'm not asking you if you go to church. I'm not asking you if you pray. I'm not asking you if you're in a home group or even if you're a leader at this church. I'm not asking you if you support missions. I'm not asking you if you're planning on uh, making some sort of tremendous sacrifice this next week for God. I'm not asking you how many times you've shared the gospel. I'm asking you, do you love Jesus? And for some of you, you may not have a relationship with Jesus. For others, your soul is broken. Regardless, I want to ask you some simple questions that can offer you and me a litmus test to, to look at, because the soul can be kind of a confusing thing, but to look at the condition of your soul. And that's this. Fill in the blank here. I will have peace if blank happens. I will have peace if the house sells. I will have peace if this relational conflict is resolved. I will have peace if this bill is paid. I will have peace if I can finally have a child. I will have peace if I can finally get this child under control. Or another way to phrase that is fill in this blank. If only blank happens or happened, I would be happy. If only I wouldn't have made that mistake I made years ago. If only I lived in a better house. If only I could get the career I wanted. Then I would be at peace and I would be happy. Folks, if that is the condition of your soul, if the blank is not filled with Jesus, then it means your soul is sick. And it may mean that you're religious, but that you don't know Jesus. And we see this command over and over in Scripture from the very beginning to the end. Don't harden your hearts because it's not uh, entirely about what we do. Of course, our actions do reflect the condition of a heart that's been changed by Christ, but not always. Sometimes we can fake it. Sometimes personality, just having a, a warm personality can make it appear as if you have an authentic relationship with Jesus. And I want to ask you tonight, what is the condition of your soul? Is it healthy? Is it broken? Or are you in a place where you don't know Jesus? I'm going to pray um, for those latter two right now, and you can agree along with me um, if that's your desire. Lord, I 
I pray first we all agree with one heart, with the mind of Christ. I pray first for those who are religious, who do all kinds of great things for you, but whose hearts are far from you. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would convict those who are in that state tonight, in that condition. And if you feel as if you're in that place tonight, please just pray along with me. Just agree with the prayer that I'm about to pray in your own mind and heart. Lord, I realize that I've been pretending. I go to church services. I do good things. People see me as a Christian. But I realize that my heart is far from you. Lord, please rescue me from my sin. Lord, please give me the grace to turn from my sin and turn to you. I need you to make my heart soft. I receive the gift of your cross where you shed your blood and paid the penalty for me that I deserve so that my heart might be circumcised unto God. And I receive the gift of your resurrection where I can have new life in you that's not based on religion, but that's based on the warm intimacy that a papa has for his little one that I can have life, that I can answer that question that I'm valuable and I'm loved. In Jesus' name, amen. Now for those who are in that place where maybe you realize that your soul is sick, your back is in some ways turned towards the Lord. You know him, but you fill in that blank, if only, with something else besides Jesus. Right now, can you, I don't know what it is for you, but can you in this next worship song, can you offer that to the Lord and say, Lord, I I give you this idol and I pray that you would soften my heart. And could you take hold of the grace to walk away from that sin and walk towards Jesus? Lord, we love you. And as we take our offering and, and continue on into worship tonight, Lord, I pray that we would respond to your salvation, Lord, that we wouldn't harden our hearts, but that we would turn to you. That by your grace, Lord, we would take hold of your power that allows us to approach the throne room of grace with confidence. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.